If you turn your attention now to the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. Now, you may be asking yourself the question, why would he write a second letter? Because it seems at first glance to be a little repetitive. He's going to reiterate something that he said. Whenever that occurs in Scripture, you can be fairly certain it's important. And so the Lord is going to fill in yet some additional details, especially regarding the second coming of the Lord. But here's a little treat for you and a way to think of this. Now, some of us in this room are undoubtedly old enough to remember when we had party line phones. Please do not raise your hand because it'll give us away. But back in the day, I grew up in North San Diego County, a little town called Poway, when you could still sit in your front yard and shoot guns and do things like that. Uh, The next closest house was over a half of a mile away. Uh, That'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? Uh, But we had party lines. And so when you made a phone call, you got connected via a switchboard, and there would be a literal cable that would go from the Gill's house over to one of the other Gill's house, because there were actually four of us who lived in Poway. And so I could talk to my Aunt Wanda, and she could talk to my Grandma Mabel, and they could go back and forth. And, 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 but when you were on the line, in the background, you could actually hear other people talking, because it was not private. It was a party line. And so everybody was kind of in on it. And in the very same way, there was a game that we used to play when I was back in youth group at our Baptist church uh, in El Cajon. And and we would sit in a circle, and the first person would make up a story. And that person would then tell the person next to them the story. You tried to keep it short enough to where the idea was that the person next to you could remember the entire story. And then that person would tell the next person, and the next person would tell the next person, and so on until you made it all the way around the circle. Can I tell you something about person 20 repeating the story back to person 1? It was never remotely close. By the time it got all the way around the circle, the person that was walking was driving a car, riding a bike. They were in different clothes. The sun was up. The sun was down. It was never the same because as human beings, we have a tendency to not listen well. And if you're a male, we really have a tendency to not listen well at times. That's kind of, yeah, ouch, amen. Uh, We, 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 uh, sometimes we, we turn the volume down when we're listening. But the point being, God wants us to be good listeners. And in the case of the church at Thessalonica, they were in a difficult situation. They were in a Greek culture, very steeped in philosophical wranglings. People would sit around and debate endlessly most everything that was discussed. And so very often you would have this game, party line, being played. Someone would hear, someone else would repeat. Now remind yourselves that they did not own Bibles, so they weren't carrying, they couldn't look it up. They couldn't say, well, the Apostle Paul said, and go to the letter of the church to Thessalonica, it was oral, and people would have to hear that word spoken. There may and was a copy, and maybe that got read in church, but by the time someone repeated it, it very often was not the same. And so the Apostle Paul hears of that, 
with regard to the first letter that was sent to this church. And so he says, hey, I need to send them a little follow-up letter because they kind of missed the point. And the way they missed the point was he had heard that they had believed that when he talked about the rapture and then the return of the church, that people took it this way. Well, Jesus is coming back next week, so we don't need to do a thing. We'll just sit around and wait for the rapture of the church to happen. Then we'll be okay. And so they stopped working and just started watching what was going on. They became ineffective. And so there's some additional details that will be added here uh, in this little letter, just three chapters that we'll cover over the next uh, couple of months or so. And so if you turn your attention now to verse 1, and before we do, let's pray and ask God to bless us with an understanding of his word. Father, we thank you that you're patient with us. And Lord, you repeat things when we need to hear them again. And so God, we would ask that as we study your word this day, would you bless us, that we'd be able to understand and know uh, what it is that you would say to us as the church, even today. And so we ask you to change our minds and hearts, Lord, if we're in error somewhere, some way in our lives, that you would correct those things by speaking forth your word into our lives. We bless you. We give you this time now. Please use it for your own purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. And so they hear the first letter, and they repeat the first letter. They speak those things forth, but they've come to the wrong conclusion. And so now you have, like many people who have received the grace of God, it really doesn't do much in their life. And you probably have met people like that. If you walk with the Lord for very long at all, you undoubtedly have also met people that claim to know the Lord, but they're stuck as a baby Christian. They haven't moved away from that milk. They've not transitioned from someone who's heard the good news of the gospel and become a believer. They've stayed basically right there. Very little fruit, if any. The grace of God is largely not manifest in their actions. And certainly they're not living lives of faith. And so the Apostle Paul now begins to speak forth this message to the church. He says, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he tells us where this comes from. Remember the plan of salvation took God the Father sending Jesus his Son. Amen? It wasn't just God. It took Jesus the Son. And in fact, it would be the third person of the Trinity that would raise Jesus from the dead. And so the whole plan of salvation, God the Father's plan, sends his only begotten Son into the world, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is raised from the dead. So he's saying here, look, God sent his own Son, and because of that, grace can come to you, and the result of that grace, notice verse 2, is the peace of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan of salvation, which is that you have received his unmerited favor, his grace, has brought you into a new place with God, whereas before you were an enemy of God, you're now a friend of God. You're actually literally a child of God. And so instead of being at war with God, you have a new relationship by grace. The result of that is peace, family. You cannot have the peace of God 
without having the grace of God. You must have the grace of God in order to have the peace of God. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be, must be, can even be saved. It's only because of Jesus that we can have the grace of God. And so that grace brings us peace. And so he's getting some foundational things squared away right at the beginning of the letter. He says, look, grace brings peace. And that also, just in case you missed it, comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Jesus Christ brings you into the right place before the throne of grace. In other words, you say yes to Jesus Christ, not just being your Savior, but also your Lord. In other words, he runs the show now. You see, what happens to someone who actually is a believer is this. This wonderful progression from salvation along the path of sanctification, which leaves you in maturation or mature, that ultimately leads to your glorification. It's a process, and it happens across the whole spectrum of your life. And so now he's bringing that into perspective that you should move away from the elemental, the foundational things, where you first got saved, you should be progressing in a couple of areas of your living. And he names them for us. He said, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. In other words, there's two things that he mentions immediately about this church that is evidenced in their growth. They're growing in faith and they are growing in love. So that we ourselves boast among the other churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and your tribulations. In other words, he's laying forth this church that is maturing in Christ and that you endure. You see, when you set out on the journey that is the Christian walk, many people wrongly believe that the moment you give your life to Jesus, every problem will cease in your life. You'll never face another storm. And in fact, Jesus himself said exactly the opposite. John chapter 16, he he reminds, look, in this world you're going to have tribulation. But I want you to understand something. I've overcome the world, so do not fear. But you're going to have tribulation. You're going to go through some persecution. Your faith, in other words, is going to get tested. And so the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church this second letter, is saying, look, we need to get first things first and don't mistake the message. They had mistaken the message. They thought, wow, great, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. And so now they begin to look at this word that Paul spoke, and he said, it's almost as if they're thinking Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Now here's the glorious news. We are supposed to believe that Jesus could return right now. This very second. But we are supposed to act like He may not return before we exit this planet via natural causes. Get it? In other words, we live in the truth that we might be home in the presence of the Lord via the rapture of the church at any second of any minute, of any hour, of any day, of any week, of any month, of any year. 
we live expecting the Lord to turn and, 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 and pick us up and snatch us away. But the thing that we do to tell him that we actually believe that is we are very busy about our father's business. What's his chief concern? That none should perish and that all should come to repentance, that we have been called to go ye therefore into all nations, all ethnos, and to make disciples of all men. All humanity. So while we're expecting that Jesus could come at any second, we're supposed to be acting like we're going to use this day fully for his glory. You see, this church had just got point one. They're sitting around going, well, he's going to come back. <laughs> Not much sense in sharing the gospel because Jesus is coming back in, a, I think, eight minutes. They had missed the point. They had mistaken the message. Instead of preaching the gospel, instead of doing meaningful ministry, they were kind of just hanging out waiting for Jesus to come. They're kind of like people that sometimes, and you read about them, they've moved off to Montana thinking they can flee sin there. Sin looks the same in Montana. It just may, you know, be a little different than it is here. You've been called to live a gospel life in the here and now. Not an escapist mentality. It says, well, you know, I might sully myself. Look, in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to get dirty if you live here. Amen? There's going to be things, you're gonna, they're going to happen. So much of the church has been sidelined by inaction because they have misread God's intention. God's intention is that we be busy. That's why we do the things that we do here. The reason we're starting a Spanish fellowship on Sundays at this service is is so that those who have family members who only speak Spanish can actually come to church together. And so those that speak English can be here and those that speak Spanish can be there. We want to be busy about our Father's business. It takes more work. It takes more effort. There isn't going to be anything, in in a sense, it's going to cause us to actually have to do more. That's because we're supposed to do more. We're supposed to wake up every day and say, Lord, what would you have me do? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? He begins by giving a, a few details and basically said, look, you need to be ready. Of course you need to be ready. It's closer now. If it was close when this letter was written, how much closer do you think it is today? Oh, my goodness. Got to be around. The, what happened in London last night? This, when is this going to end? When the Lord finally says, Enough is enough. And the way things are going, I wouldn't hold out it's going to be a whole lot longer. I I believe that the Lord is one day going to poke his heads through the clouds and say, come on home. So in the meantime, we want to make sure as many people as we can possibly get to come with us have the opportunity to do so. Let me ask you a little question. 
And I don't mean to upset anybody. But if you knew that you had exactly 24 hours left in your entire life before Jesus came, before he blew the trumpet and took the church out of this world, recognizing that we are the vehicle through which he normally works, he's called us to go make disciples. He can use rocks and trees, and if necessary, he does, but he has actually called us to do that. If you knew you had 24 hours, how would you spend it? I know what I'd be doing. I would be screaming the gospel anywhere to everywhere. I'd have a cell phone in one hand and a sign in the other, and I'd be roaming around saying, you need to know Jesus, you got 24 hours. You don't have any time. The age of grace is about to come to a close. Family of God. And I mean to chastise no one. Maybe you're already doing that. That's actually how we're supposed to live our lives because we don't know when he's coming. Your family, if he came today, would perish possibly. Maybe they would give their life to Jesus during the tribulation, but it's easy now. It's going to be harder then. So he's saying, wake up. Wake up. Paul writes this letter. He tells us he writes this letter. The first thing he does, to put this in context, is makes us all remember who we are. He gives a grace greeting. And he does so in all of his letters, and he does it this way, because without the grace of God, you can't have the peace of God. Grace is God's faith provision for you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. So it is a provision to us because of God's goodness, his love, his absolute desire that all men come to repentance. That's what he wants. And so Paul says, don't forget who you are. You're God's grace kids. Live like his grace kids. That was faith that was given to you as a gift that has been manifested, and now you have a right standing before a holy God because of the unmerited favor of God. You see, when you walk around going, I don't deserve what I have, you start thinking about other people because... You don't deserve what you have. These people were thinking about themselves chiefly. And the result of that grace is the peace of God. And hence my saying, you you can't have God's peace without God's grace. Oh, you can have the absence of conflict. You may be in a time when your life is going generally smoothly, but you're still facing war with God without his grace. You may have not even declared it yourself, but your life is being lived apart from him. So one day, he will have no choice but to say, what did you do with my son Jesus? And you're going to say nothing. And he's going to say, depart, for I have never known you. So you can have everything this world has to offer and still perish eternally. God doesn't want that. So he says, if you want my peace, the cessation of the war between me and you, you need to take my grace. 
And so the Apostle Paul says, grace to you and peace because of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. Because of that grace state that we can now walk in, we're not in the state of war that used to exist. This father-son duo is the only one that can make that happen. I find it interesting as we turn our attention now to verse 3, and, and I want to kind of focus in in our remaining time in, in, these, in these last two verses. And he begins by saying, look, we're bound to thank God always for you. We, we couldn't do anything else. When we think of you, we brag about you. Can God brag about us as a church? Can other people, can people who know us brag about us? Will they have something nice to say? You know, we live in a world that is, is overtly negative. Amen? It's like crazy. I was like, nobody can say anything nice about anybody else. You, you turn on the television, you're like, I, I, frankly, I'm just like, I'm turning this off. I, I don't want to be assaulted with the negativity. But Paul's reaching very deeply into someone's soul when he says, we're bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because of your faith that grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. In other words, they have growing faith and abounding love. They have growing faith and they have abounding love. You see, a lot of people have saving faith, but they don't have abounding faith. And they have the love that God placed in their life, but that love stays on square one. We are supposed to grow in both faith and love. Paul put it another way as he wrote to the church at Corinth. Wonderful chapter. Many of you know some of it by heart. At chapter 13, the love chapter. It ends this way in verse 13. And now abide in faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You see, as a church, we, we want to be known as a doctrinally correct church, for sure. We want to accurately teach the Word of God. But if what we do brings people to believe that what we are mostly concerned about is correctness, then we have misrepresented God. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. And so you can have it right doctrinally and still be unloving. You can walk in truth but not have faith. And so while truth is absolutely important, to some degree it's even essential. There's only one gospel. You need to know what that gospel is. There are truths that apply to your life that come from the Word. It, we want to know what those are. But at the end of the day, what does Paul commend this church for? They had growing faith and they had abounding love. I want to be a church that's known for growing faith and abounding love. That's what we want to be. Now, one of the tools to get there is knowing the truth. But we want to be known as a church that grows in faith abounds in love. We want to have that kind of reputation. We want to have that reputation as individual Christians. It'd be pretty hard not to boast about a church where you could say, 
They have great faith and great love. You probably have all met Christians. Oh, they, they argue about everything. They haggle about the fine points of doctrine endlessly. And at the end, it becomes so unloving that everybody just walks away. I don't even know if I want to know this Jesus. And I'm not saying that we should abandon truth. Not in any way, shape, or form am I saying that. But ultimately, if we drive people away from the grace of God, and we drive people away from faith in Christ, if we drive people away from the love of God, which that is the one thing that Scripture says draws men to repentance, it's his kindness, it's his love, then I think we kind of misrepresent the God that loves us. And so he says, look, the something nice to say is this church was filled with faith and filled with love. And he begins by pointing out their faith, the fullness of it. And there are two aspects to your faith. When you gave your life to Christ, you received faith that saves, saving faith. But we're not supposed to stay there. We're supposed to grow in faith. A lot of Christians got saving faith, and they've been stuck right at saving faith. There's no growing faith. There's no dynamic faith. There's no working faith. When you read the book of James, the reason that he says, faith without works is dead, is not because being saved is a bad thing. It's that faith is supposed to transition into something that works for the Lord while you're still here. Dynamic faith, working faith. That's why he went on to say, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's reminding us we're supposed to have a huge measure of dynamic faith. And the only way you can have that type of faith is if your faith grows. You see, you're going to have the same quantity of saving faith. You have to have saving faith to be a child of God. But you will not have the same uh, quantity of dynamic faith. Dynamic faith, you, you can grow in that. That working faith that says, look, I'm going to allow God to use my life. And here's the scary thing. In order for that to happen, in order for you to grow, your faith has to be tested. Your spiritual capacity is just like your physical capacity. I can tell you how to not get any stronger when you go to the gym. You walk in, you take all the weight off of every piece of equipment, and then you sit on it, and you stare at it. You say, wow, this could really make me stronger. You know what's going to happen? Nothing. Why? Because you're not using the equipment that's designed to make you stronger. The same is true for your faith. If you want your faith to grow, then you've got to put some weight on there that you can't lift. Unlike guys who see girls come into the gym, and what the guys do is they immediately reach down and they put the weight on that they know they can lift. That's the highest amount that they can lift. Check out the guns. They only do what they already know they can do. 
You want to see how strong they are? Go remove that thing up a few notches. But you see, no guy wants to have the girls look at them while they're going, you know, and they're straining. It's like they can't get it. You see, they have to work to get to that place. The same is true for your faith. If you want your faith muscles to grow, then you've got to ask God to put some weight on there that you can't already lift. And the way this passage says that's going to happen is by persecution and tribulation. By stuff that you can't already handle. Those things coming into your life, well, you know, I'm kind of, I don't know that I want to go to El Salvador. Now, I don't know if I want to trust God with my finances. I don't know if I want to, you know, Sunday school, those kids scare me. A greeter, you mean I got to talk to people? You see, when you allow your faith to be tested, you're probably going to go through some persecution. You're going to go through some tribulation. You're going to experience some things that you would not otherwise experience. And here's the crazy thing, because we just covered it in Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for the good to those who are the called according to God's purposes. All things cause you to grow in faith in the hands of a loving God. But you will not ever grow if you don't let God do things in your life that you can't already, that you can't do. You just walk around doing the things you already know how to do, you're not going to grow. You may get real adept at doing what you can already do, but your faith won't be tested. You will not grow in faith. God wants us to reach that point where we're strong, strong in faith and strong in love. Not just kind of sort of hanging in there. And family, you're you're simply going to have to submit to things that you probably are not going to like when they happen. There's no shortcut to it. I can't even tell you that the number of lessons that I have learned in my time of walking with the Lord that were learned in the very best way in the crucible of tribulation and trial. I've learned how to be compassionate. I've learned how to be tender because God beat me to a pulp. Seriously. Allowed me to be broken and crushed. Well, I mean, think, God, you're going to take my own son? You get very compassionate towards other people going through trial when something like that happens to you because you're forced to cry out to God. You can't handle it. You see, family, God wants us to grow. These guys were perfectly happy to stay right where they're at. God wants you as powerful warriors for his kingdom. He wants you well-armed. And in order to do that, he's going to let your faith get tested. You're going to go through storms. You're, you're going to have tornadoes come your way in your life. But the bottom line is, is God does want to be able to, to boast about us. So he wants us to have that dynamic faith. And he wants us to have that abounding love. 
When you go through that persecution, when you go through those tribulations, when trials come your way, and God's at work in your life, then what happens is you trust him in a new way. Your faith grows. It gets deeper. Whereas you used to be stuck, you know, you could trust God that you got up in the morning. You know, there are a lot of people, that's, that's pretty much it. Well, I, I trust him with my breathing. How about when you trust him with your living? How about when you trust him when everything you have is gone? How about that morning when you wake up and you, you got a pink slip in your hand and you were one year and two months from what you thought was retirement? You see, that's where you're going to be trusting God. That's where you're going to have to lean on the everlasting arms. That's where you grow. Now, we don't like those things. Nor am I suggesting to anyone that you go out and, you know, just look for trouble. Okay? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But when God allows things in your life, it puts you in the place of where you need him, not just want him. You cry out to him. And so he says, in all these things, endure, hold up repeatedly, prosper in, grow in. And as God designs the things that goes on in our lives and oversees them, both adversity and prosperity, we actually become those faith-filled people that he can say, you want to see what it looks like? Well, check out George. George. Look at Gail. Let's see Mikey. You know, Linda's been through that already. Why don't you go talk to her? He can boast in us. Just like he could with Job. Amen? Let's be that kind of church that God can boast about. Let's be those type of believers that God can boast about. Let's make God proud. Let's get in the gym and work out spiritually our faith and let God do something amazing with our lives. Amen? Would you stand? Let's pray together. Now maybe you need somebody to pray with you today because you're in one of those spots. Trial, persecution, tribulations come your way. Uh, we have an incredible prayer team in our prayer room. Be happy to take those prayer needs before the throne of grace maybe you need some encouragement from the scriptures share with you those things that would apply in the in the area where you're struggling maybe you don't know the lord you just need to receive him today that's the first step that's how you get that grace that results in peace it's by inviting the lord into your heart asking him to be your savior and your lord for the rest of us let's go be a church that god can boast about father we thank you for your love for us your tender care your goodness lord thank you that you don't cast us away lord when we're still growing you, you give us an opportunity to stretch our wings and make mistakes Lord, you never push us away. You're always there to bring us back and to help. 
And so, God, we pray that we would be known as a church that has great faith and great love. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.